electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Jobs. The economy adding only 194,000 jobs in September. Enhanced unemployment benefits ended. Most kids are back to school. There are millions of job openings. So why aren't more roles being filled? And what's it mean for stocks, bonds, and the taper, we'll ask. And we're talking Tesla with an analyst bullish on the stock for what he calls the company's Apple-esque brand. We'll explain. And the reluctant downgrade, why one brokerage is cutting Home Depot and Lowe's, even though the housing market is still hot, and scratching their heads about Christmas. But we begin with the market reaction to the jobs report. Interesting picture over here, Mr. Chu. Scratching their heads. That's what a lot of traders are doing right now because they're trying to figure out what exactly happened. That's a very disappointing jobs number, as Kelly pointed out. Why isn't the market reacting more markedly? Maybe because right now it's still a holding pattern with regard to whether or not this is a game changer for the Fed, for interest rates, for Washington policymakers, everybody out there. Regardless, the markets are relatively stable given the number that we saw. We're up only three points. We're going to call it pretty much unchanged for the Dow Industrials. The S&P 500, very similar move there. And the Nasdaq Composite underperforming, only down by about one-third of one percent. Just to give you an idea of how tight the trading range has been, at the highs of the session, we were up roughly 45 points and then down just 62 points for the Nasdaq overall at the low. So tilting towards the negative side. But again, very tight trading range so far today. It is a Friday, so let's recap what happened so far this week from a sector perspective The two biggest gainers in the S&P 500 over the one-week span have been energy stocks and financial stocks. Those two particular sectors, the real outperformers, the so-called value cyclical trade that a lot of experts have been talking about. Meanwhile, no surprise here, the underperformer healthcare on many of those vaccine makers, biotech taking a hit over the course of the week. Watch that particular trade. And then speaking of that energy trade. The names that have kind of dominated the one-week performance list on the S&P 500 have been those energy-type names. Philip 66, the best-performing stock in the S&P on a one-week basis as of this moment. Marathon Oil up there as well, up 11%, and APA Corporation up 10%. So again, energy, value cyclical. We'll see if that lasts, Kel. Back over to you. Dom Chu, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Well, the job support this morning was certainly a puzzling one. The headline numbers were weak. Well, at least the payroll side. The detailed numbers are pretty jumbled. Labor force participation is falling, but at the same time, the number of job openings across the country is sitting at record highs. So many questions came out of this report that we decided to do a special economic edition of Rapid Fire in the A Block to kick things off. Here to help make sense of everything for us today, Michelle Myers, Bank of America, Global Research Head of U.S. Economics. Steve Odland is the CEO of the Conference Board. And I have a very specific uh, issue to discuss with you, Steve. Okay, we'll get to that. And Rich Bernstein is the Richard Bernstein Advisors CEO, and we are really thrilled to have you guys all on board. So let's start with kind of everything that we learned this morning, the big numbers. Non-farm payrolls rose by 194,000. That was the weakest since last December of 2020. It was also a huge miss from around the 500,000 that was expected. But the private sector print was only about 36,000 less than expected. The unemployment rate dropped to 4.8 percent. That's the lowest since last March in the third straight monthly decline. All sounds pretty good. 
There were big gains in leisure and hospitality balanced by tremendous losses in the government sector. Labor force participation overall shows some recovery, but we're still well below pre-pandemic levels. And labor force participation among the 25 to 45 key demo was also a little weak. So what is the takeaway within these numbers? Michelle, let's kick things off with you. Sure. So, Kelly, you had a great summary there, which is that the headline, that 194,000, kind of, you know, doesn't necessarily capture what we actually saw in the report, which was, you know, better data. Um, Without a doubt, there's a lot of demand for workers, whether you look at the job opening survey or you look at other measures of small business sentiment, for example, there's just a lot of lot of employers that are looking to hire. So the real challenge, and I think this was emphasized in today's report, is that there's supply side issues. The labor force is constrained. And in fact, in the most recent data, the labor force contracted. Um, and that was one of the reasons the unemployment rate was set to fall. Um, so I think this friction in the economy, which is really being highlighted by the jobs report, um, is one of the major challenges that we have right now. And, and I think as we look forward, we should get some relief. You know, all the factors that you mentioned before in terms of childcare, declining COVID cases, um, expiration of UI, that starts to kick in for the next jobs report, but it really wasn't quite in play yet for this one. So, Michelle, when you break things down, is this a strong economy held back by what it wants to do, or is it a slowing economy on the cusp yeah. of recession? Certainly not the latter. Um, I think it is an economy that has strong fundamentals. It has plenty of capacity to expand in terms of the demand side, right? There's a lot of money out there that that can be put to work. There's a lot of companies that are looking to hire. There are a lot of companies that are looking to invest in capital. Okay. Um, the challenge is more on the supply side, but that could be a real dampening factor. So this brings a, sets us up for Mr. Odlin. So Steve, we have uh, sort of this on the, this argument on the one hand. On the other hand, we can talk about all the scary data, like the Atlanta GDP now figure that's you know, slowing precipitously. This paper by uh, Blanche Flower talking about, and rarely, Steve, do we see an academic paper talking about how we're in recession, right? Those usually come like five years after the fact, not in the moment, you know, ahead of things. So they're basically talking about the conference board uh, confidence readings, expectations readings, and saying usually when they drop by at least 10 points, a recession follows. Like more often than not, we're in a similar position now. The real question, they say, is whether we've had so much stimulus that it basically offsets or absorbs all of that. So I've heard people call it a growth recession and other seemingly paradoxical terms that seem to perfectly sum up the times we're living in. Yeah, we're not in a recession and the conference board doesn't see us going into recession at this point. Look, I, if, you, if you look at the uh, uptick in the revisions for last month, it, it really made a very strong month. And so the, the, the juxtaposition of this month versus last month is all Delta. And so you, had a, you have a breakthrough. People even who are double vaccinated are getting sick. And so everybody's putting the brakes on. They're not going out and so forth. And even though the, the numbers were strong in hospitality and leisure, they were way down from the job creation that was expected and where we were before. So this is all this is all the hiccup with the Delta. The question is, how long is it going to last? Now, you have people staying at home because of Delta. At the same time, you have the administration putting vaccine mandates on. And so you are seeing large scale terminations because, you know, the the administration says it should be a condition of employment. So people are acting on that. I think we all need to take a collective breath here get through this thing. I think it will rebound. The demand side is there. Uh, the question is whether we can get the goods in the stores for the holiday season. Sure. 
Uh, and that's a big if because you've got all these container ships sitting offshore without people to unload it and without the drivers to drive it across the country. So I think you're going to see a huge e-commerce lift. Uh, but I think we're going to have a good season and the economy is not in recession. All right. And Rich, I'll give you your gut reaction on all of this, um, sort of how you felt about the market going into it and how you feel now. So, Kelly, I think the story is uh, really all about cyclicals. I think you have people kind of clinging on to the story of tech innovation disruption and kind of ignoring the reality of what's going on in the economy that, that we're trying to talk about here today. And, and so I think the way to think about this and summarize this is to say that investors have for a long time thought about real growth. I think going forward, you're going to hear more talk about nominal growth because pricing power is a very big issue, whether it's pricing power for goods, pricing power for labor, which means wages, anything like that. That's going to be reflected in nominal growth not in real growth. So the key to portfolios over the next 6 to 12 to 18, even 24 months, is how sensitive is your portfolio to nominal growth, hmm. not to real growth. And what would that mean? So if I thought, you know, we were going to have, what, then, what, what, you know, we're hearing a lot about energy. We're hearing a lot about financials. We see the, you know, the 10-year rich kind of, you know, ticking above 1.6%. What, what does that point to you? So, so, Kelly, you hit on an interesting point. With the yield curve steepening and interest rates going up, that's pricing power for the financial sector, right? What we had for a very long time was basically a flat yield curve that didn't offer any margin to lending, right? And the only way to increase your lending was to use leverage, which the banks can't do anymore. So now that the curve is steepening, that argues you're getting pricing power for the financial sector, which is why we think there's so, one of the reasons why we think they're so attractive. But again, the theme in portfolios, I think, has to be pricing power. I think that's the biggest story out there right now. Yeah. All right. Sure. So on that note, let's turn to the Fed now in the taper timeline. In its testimony on Capitol Hill last week, Fed Chair Jay Powell was almost prescient on today's jobs report. Listen. Right now, we are we're far away from, we, we think, away from full employment. So that gives us an incentive to keep uh, accommodative policy strong, uh, to keep accommodative policy in place. Um, inflation is well above target. And, uh, you know, we, we have an expectation that that high inflation will abate uh, because we think the factors that are causing it are temporary and tied to the pandemic and the reopening of the economy. And um, what we say is we just have to balance the, the two. So this is the last jobs report before the next Fed meeting. I think it begins on the Wednesday before the next jobs report comes out. The Fed was already split on whether or not to taper, Michelle. But it seems like all evidence is pointing towards the announcement coming next month, the taper beginning in December. Does anything change that? I think we're very much on track. I mean, it was, a, in my view, it was a high hurdle to stop the Fed from going ahead with tapering in November. Um, they see the criteria being met on price stability. I think today's jobs report was perfectly sufficient. And in fact, it actually probably made them more concerned about some of these inflationary pressures into the end of the year, given the restrictions we had seen on the supply side and the increase in wages and these kind of cost pressures building. So I think the Fed is on track to announce the taper in the next meeting um, and then really focus the attention on when and how they're going to set up for interest rate hikes. And Steve, is it going to be strange to have them tapering at a time when we're going to, we are, no matter what the GDP number looks like, it's slowing. You know, a lot of people, this goes to the real nominal thing that Rich was talking about. A lot of people don't feel better off by how the economy's been doing because prices are up so much on things like food and fuel. 
you know, think they're going to press ahead with that anyway? Well, you know, there's there's tapering and then there's taper. What does it mean is, is the issue? I, they're not going to raise interest rates, but they are going to, you know, cut back on on the quantity that they're buying. And, uh, you know, because they're trying to just ease off the inflation level uh, a little bit here. I think inflation has some components that uh, are longer term and then some components that are shorter term. And you just have to look at the used car market to to understand that that's having a huge impact just on the total inflation number. And we've got to get through the chip shortage. So, you know, how long is that going to last? I think the bigger issue here is, is in jobs. You have still have five million people sitting on the sidelines from pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, the majority of those are women. And the question is whether those women are going to be able to come back. Now there's child care issues and elder care issues and all of that. But at what point do they just say, oh, you know, forget it. I'm, I'm staying home. You also have about a third of them that are boomers that are retiring and they're just hanging it up. So I think you do are you are going to have these labor supply issues going forward. Wages are up six percent in the last six months. The question is whether that's going to be uh, carried over in inflation as well. So, Rich, you know, I think also a lot of people out there sense that maybe the Fed is part of the problem in the sense that if they look at the price hikes, they go, well, they're tracing it back to government stimulus and to Fed stimulus and saying perhaps that maybe the response has been too large and is creating some of these distortions now. So is there a case for the Fed to actually move along more quickly? You know, Kelly, I, I think it's it, no one should argue that the that the Fed's actions haven't distorted the economy and haven't distorted the financial markets. I mean, I would argue that's kind of silly. You have to look at what's going on and, and the misallocation of capital in the financial markets, and it's pretty obvious that, that they've distorted things. But I think from an investment point of view, as opposed to an economic point of view, an investor has to realize that the Fed is a lagging indicator, right? Janet Yellen used to talk about how they're going to be data-dependent and I thought that was a very interesting term because, number one, one should ask, like, well, what were they before if they were suddenly data dependent? Were they just winging it? But the other side is that what she was saying was they're going to get the data, they're going to analyze the data, and most importantly, they're going to react to the data. So I think rather than being a setter of the financial uh, markets, as many people think, they're actually the lagging entity, and the markets will sniff out what's going on. I think that's exactly what's been going on already. No, the markets aren't waiting for the Fed to taper. The 10-year is already selling off. And, and so I think one has to remember the Fed's going to be at the back of the line. They're not going to be at the front of the line. That may be the right thing to do, by the way. I'm not arguing, you know, from a, from a socially responsible point of view, they may have to do that. But from an investment point of view, I think it's very important to realize that. All right. So then let me kind of rattle off this final topic and, and come back into the, the takeaways from all this. On the wage front, we had September wages up about six tenths of a percent last month, more than expected. Average hourly earnings are running around a six percent annualized pace over the past six months. It's, it's huge. Compare that with the year on year average of just three percent over the past decade. So, Rich, you've already said, you know, look for companies with pricing power. You think bond yields are going up and all the rest of it. But I guess the question is, what would you specifically have in your basket? I mean, what what is going to be, you think, then the market trend into the end of the year, maybe even kind of into the first quarter of next year? What should people be thinking about in terms of where the strongest performance will be? So, Kelly, we've been positioned on the cyclical side. You know, we've been overweight energy, materials, industrial, small cap value, 
all the things that are very sensitive to, as I said, the nominal economy. I think one thing that people aren't thinking enough about are the opportunities outside the United States. You know, one of my favorite lines is that France isn't exactly the hotbed of innovation and disruption, yet France is outperforming NASDAQ so far this year. Wow. So I, I think there's lots of opportunities outside the United States as well that people are just ignoring. But again, the key is pricing power, nominal growth, not long-term secular growth, which doesn't perform well as interest rates go up. And Michelle, it's interesting that Rich mentioned France, which is a country I've actually heard people like Jeremy Grantham speak of positively in terms of the nominal wage growth or real wage growth they've delivered. You know, that they're way ahead of the U.S. And we've often kind of looked at that maybe as a sign of, of, um, you know, of an inefficient economy. But maybe that's exactly where the U.S. needs to go. How much higher do you think wages could go here if this is a real kind of secular reset? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're touching on something important, which is that when you look at where the wage growth has been, it's the lower income, lower skilled cohort that's seeing the most dramatic increases in wages. And one can argue that that's a long time coming, that there, the wage growth for that population was quite stagnant, especially relative to inflation. So real wages were contracting for many folks. Um, and now that we have this extraordinary demand for those workers with a restricted supply, you're naturally seeing this level set higher in wages. Um, do I anticipate that we're going to see wage growth of this magnitude continue um, going forward? No. I, I think this is more of a, of a level set, and then we'll probably see more moderate gains in wages for go, in, in, into the future. Um, but one other really important note when you think about this for the broader economy, you have to think about wage growth relative to productivity growth. And um, we're seeing both right now. So for companies, that actually is quite positive. That's a great sign. Steve, I'll give you the last word then. What would you say about how much higher wages need to go in order to fill all the open jobs, make sure there's not a shortage of truckers, and that this whole supply side of the economy isn't putting the brakes on things? Yeah, well, I think Michelle made some great points. The, it's, it's in the service sector where the wage growth is the highest, blue-collar jobs, truck drivers, where there are the shortages. And these are the jobs that require that you be on-site in person. If you look at the mandates, and public policy matters, if you look at the mandates, they are you must be vaccinated to be employed. That's mm -hmm. probably not the right way to do it. They could fix it. So I simply saying to be on site and leave the, uh, the people who want to work remotely and the employers who are willing to have remote workers, leave them alone. If you did that, you would give the flexibility to the economy to balance that out with on-site, in-person, mm -hmm. and, uh, and remote work. If you did that, then I think you would see uh, wages sort of normalize over the course of 2022. So it's public policy related as well as uh, Delta variant related. That's a great point, especially in this kind of, uh, you know, this is, everything about this has been unusual. And the, the sort of necessary uh, cures at this point still are unusual relative uh, to the recent past. We'll leave it there. Guys, thank you all so much today. Michelle Meyer, Steve Odlin, and Rich Bernstein digging through the jobs report uh, and coming away with some takeaways. Coming up, Tesla getting a big price target hike from one analyst who says it's taking a page from Apple in developing its energy ecosystem. We'll dig into the call next and see why they see the stock rallying 20% from here. Plus, a reluctant downgrade from Wall Street on Home Depot and Lowe's, with both names less than 5% from their all-time highs. The analyst behind that call joins us to explain later on. And as we head to break, here's a look at the sector heat map, just like we were talking to Rich about. Energy and financials are in the green today. The only two sectors right now, real estate, materials, the biggest laggards. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Tesla shares are lowered today after their annual shareholder meeting. Investors keying on Elon Musk's admission its supply chain remains under pressure and its delays to Cybertruck, despite coming off a record quarter for vehicle deliveries. It also announced relocating headquarters from Silicon Valley to Texas. Shares are down about 1% right now, and our next guest remains bullish. In fact, after last night's event, he upped his price target to 940 from 768 saying Tesla's brand and ecosystem are actually Apple-esque. For more, let's welcome in our own Phil LeBeau with the analyst who made the call, Jed Dorsheimer, Global Head of Sustainability Research at Canaccord Genuity. Welcome to you both. Hmm, so many places I could start here. Jed, I'll begin with you. Why after last night did you up, uh, up your price target? Yeah, so, you know, a few things. If you look at our upgrade, which goes back, you know, a little while here, we talk about the brand and being able to bring that into other parts of the the energy ecosystem, which so far Tesla has not been all that successful in doing. That's the Apple-esque part of things. Uh, And that's kind of our, you know, positive stance. So we got that from uh, last night. We also got uh, much higher deliveries and a positive mix shift, which we think is gonna lead to healthier margins. And so I think you've got a little bit of buy on rumor, sell on news happening today. But as we go into the earnings report, we are expecting uh, better than street expectations, which I think carries the stock uh, high. Into earnings. All right. So, Phil, it is interesting to look at the delivery numbers, um, the sort of right. tantalizing prospects of all these new gigafactories and what they could deliver. But, you know, they're still bringing them fully online. Uh, I'm curious how they can both produce more cars than ever at a time when their market share might be under pressure from more competition than ever, as it seems that the general interest when, with these big announcements from GM and Ford and all the rest of it, you know, I just wonder if the tide is turning towards uh, the average person starting to think more seriously about EVs, not least because gasoline is so expensive right now. Right. Well, look, Tesla's market share will come down. I mean, you're not going to stay at 63% forever. The question is, how much does it come down? And if you're a Tesla bull, you're looking at the prospects of them entering into new markets uh, and having even greater success than they you know, possibly could imagine at this point. Cybertruck is a good example. Look, are they going to take over the pickup truck market? No. It is a lifestyle pickup truck, but there appears to be appetite. And Lifestyle pickup trucks make up about 20 to 25 percent of the pickup market. So that's one market that they have yet to enter into. They also believe that the Model Y could ultimately become the best-selling vehicle in the world. And for a point of reference, the best-selling vehicle in the world on an annual basis is the Toyota Corolla. So they believe that they can get there. If that happens, boy, there's a lot of profitable uh, sales in their future. And remember, the Berlin Gigafactory coming online that should help them immensely in Europe. Yes. And so, Jed, let's talk about how much of your price target, again, it's uh, now 940, 
is predicated on higher vehicle sales and how much is predicated on this Apple ecosystem, which to fully explain to everybody what you're talking about is kind of this all-in-one energy ecosystem where they have, you know, solar panels on your roof that generate energy that then can power your EV and all the rest of it. You know, how, what's the relative importance of those uh, two systems to Tesla's value, valuation? Sure. So just to take a step back, you know, let me clarify the Apple S. What I mean by that is, you know, my first Apple product was an iPod. Uh, today, my family owns 20 plus devices from Apple. And so they hooked me with that iPod and they were able to um, sell me really the, the what locked it in was the iTunes that then allowed an easier, uh, a better experience, if you will, um, that allowed me to kind of buy more of those devices. And so if we look at Tesla, in the early adoption, they have about 20% market share on the EV side of things globally, if you will. Um, and I agree, their market share is likely to come down. The question is around timing, but will they be able to use that market share to pull in that brand, that, uh, that understanding of people saying, hey, Tesla's about quality. They understand this, right. you, know, elect, you know, the energy shift better than anybody. So I want to put their solar panel on my on my house. And I would remind people that there is an aggressive marketing campaign going on by Tesla right now on that non-EV side of things. Mm -hmm. It's still relatively low and uh, from a low base. And we're about 2x the street as we look out a couple of years uh, in terms of what's in our model. Got it. So we think that that is going to uh, eventually segue to these other areas. Um, and I generally agree with uh, the other gentleman on, on many of those points. Well, and again, it's probably why they were quick to backtrack on raising the cost of solar roofs that people had already signed contracts for if this is such an important part of growth to them. Phil, I just want to quickly mention that midnight tonight is kind of an important moment for Tesla because, you know, if you've got a perfect 100 score, I think this is when yeah. we start. Uh, you start. Does this mean that we're going to have cars full self-driving uh, out there in the public? Well, it's the beta version. It's the latest beta version of the full self-driving uh, technology of the software. It'll be downloaded. They think about a thousand people will get this uh, this software, which they say allows you to do. Now, they're very careful about this. They do not come out and say that it is level four autonomous vehicle driving. There's no vehicles out on the road that have that capability right now. Let's be clear about that. But they do believe that this is the next level of hands-free driving uh, and autonomous driving, and that this is one more step towards level four autonomous vehicles yeah. out on the road. So we'll, we'll see what it's like. Look, the full self-driving story is one where if you're a Tesla bull, and I have friends who own Tesla who are like, can't wait for full self-driving. Mm -hmm. And when I bring up to them, have you seen it yet? No, but it's coming. So you have to you have to take it with a grain of salt. But it is an important day for the launch of the latest beta version of that. Yeah, and from what I understand, it's hard enough to get a perfect score that maybe only the very, very best, safest, most cautious drivers are going to be the ones with this right. technology, at least to start. Uh, very interesting to see what happens. Phil LeBeau, Jed Dorsheimer, thank you guys both so much for being here to talk Tesla today. Coming up, Thanks the automaker, or I should say this automaker, is having its best week since January. It's not Tesla, but we'll tell you what's behind the gains next. And it's not just COVID you should worry about this winter. Why experts are warning about a twindemic that's ahead on the exchange. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. As we head into the afternoon, stocks are moving lower. Uh, we're still off the lows of the session, though, when we were down 92. The Dow's down 45 points at the moment. The Nasdaq is now down half of a percent. Let's take this moment to check on the sectors for the week as well. It's been a big one with energy up more than 4 percent. The financials up 2 percent. And really, those are the only uh, the strongest ones. Healthcare, meanwhile, is down about a third of 1 percent. So that's been a laggard. And here are some of the movers this hour. A big one for General Motors. We were teasing that into the break. Investors continue to be bullish following their Investor Day earlier this week, where they said revenue will double in the next nine years. Uh, they're up 10 percent since Monday for their best week since January, around 58 today, adding 3 percent. The cable stocks, meanwhile, are under pressure after Wells Fargo turned bearish on the sector. Charter is lower after a double downgrade from overweight to underweight. Charter's down 4.5 percent today. The analyst also cut his price targets for Comcast, our parent company, and Altice, and he downgraded Cable 1 to equal weight. Comcast down 4 percent. Over to Seema Modi now for a CNBC News update. Seema? Hey, Kelly. Good afternoon. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is calling today's global tax agreement a once-in-a-generation accomplishment for economic diplomacy. Nearly 140 nations have agreed to a 15 percent minimum tax on big multinational corporations. It's designed to prevent big companies from keeping profits in low-tax havens. President Biden is looking for the bright side in today's September jobs report. In comments within the last hour, he did not dwell on the disappointing payrolls again, but did focus on another measure. Today's report has the unemployment rate down to 4.8 percent, a significant improvement from when I took office and a sign that our recovery is moving forward even in the face of a COVID pandemic. And the House panel is accusing Donald Trump of grossly exaggerating the financial health of his Washington hotel. It says Trump reported it brought in $150 million in revenue while he was in the White House, but Trump did not publicly reveal the bottom line, a loss of more than $70 million. That's despite almost $4 million coming in from foreign government bookings. Tonight on the news, how feeding seaweed to cows can help by global warming has something to do with greenhouse gases, I'm sure you can imagine, Kelly. I sort of don't even want to think about it. <laughs> but Seema, I feel like you, it's, you're all over seaweed, aren't you? All over it. In my sushi, in greenhouse gases, just <laughs> go for it. it. Tastes really good. It's a very good snack. Seema Modi, thank you very much. Coming up with WTI crude briefly crossed above the $80 mark for the first time in nearly seven years. We'll dig into the energy trade and its biggest beneficiaries next. Before we head to break, let's do some show and tell. NatGas is on pace for its seventh straight week of gains, its longest winning streak since 2013. Here's EQT CEO Toby Rice on WEX this morning with his prediction for how long these high prices could last. So I think it's going to be very difficult uh, to see a situation with in, in Europe and in Asia where they can actually stock up. I think that they're going to be stocking up um, regardless of whether it's a warm winter or cold winter, I think it's going to take a period of time for them to stock up. Um, so, you know, believe that this, you know, pricing increase for, for LNG is going to is going to persist for, you know, well past the, the winter.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Stocks are trying to post a fourth straight day of gains in this wild week. The Dow's up about 1,000 points since Monday's sell-off lows, and it's the S&P's best week since mid-August. But what changes from the jobs report this morning, if anything? Let's welcome in Nancy Tangler, the chief investment officer at Laffer Tangler Investments, and Gina Sanchez, who's Chantigo Global's CEO and CNBC contributor. We want kind of some like a playbook, Nancy, uh, for the next couple of months, if you want to call it that, incorporating the taper, whatever's going on with the economy here. What would you tell us? I mean, I think the economy is in, in decent shape. We had the Atlanta Fed, as you know, come in and, and lower uh, estimates for third quarter GDP to 1.3. All the while, the week before, we had Wall Street uh, strategists upgrading estimates to 2022 earnings. That's a bit of a disconnect. Then we got the jobs report today, and it was disappointing on the headline. But when you dig in and you look at the revisions, you know, June, July, and August were all revised up uh, pretty significantly. So maybe the job picture isn't as bad as we thought, particularly given the fact that a lot of it was um, in government and education. So we we think that the Fed probably stays on track for the November taper. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, we think they're a little bit behind. And and we're going to be watching earnings calls, uh, how much discussion is centered around higher inflation, uh, input costs, supply chain disruptions, because we're at peak earnings and, and peak margins. And that's a dangerous place to be. All right. So let's circle back in a moment to some of uh, your specific picks here. Gina, anything you would differ on in terms of that description of the environment that we're in kind of generally strong, but with risks around uh, profit margins in particular? I completely agree with Nancy there. In fact, if anything, a lot of the fear of profit margins gave corporations uh, a pass to actually pass pricing increases through to customers in ways that we haven't seen that kind of corporate pricing power um, in some time. And and so we've actually seen corporate profit margins expanding, except now we're going to start to experience the real inflation in the form of wage inflation. Um, and, and that's really, uh, when when Nancy says that we're looking at peak profit margins, I think she's right. Um, And I think that that's the phase we're going into now, which is where pricing matters for investors. Who do you want to own, Gina? Does it have to be just the, the, as we often hear, the stocks with pricing power, any any sector? Or is it that you want to avoid entire areas like consumer staples? Or or maybe that's the place to be? I mean, where would you be uh, in this environment? Well, look, I think today is a perfect example of who gets hit. The NASDAQ is taking it more in the chin um, than the than the S&P. And we've seen that actually throughout kind of some of the volatility that we've seen. And that is just because those higher growth margins have also have are relatively more expensive. And there are better places, better value uh, to be purchased uh, elsewhere in the market. And value actually reared its ugly head uh, during this uh, volatility. And I think that that's probably going to be a place to be um, until we get through tapering, until we get through the debt ceiling, which has just been put off, not finalized. And so there are lots of of sources of volatility where you probably want to be in in uh, less expensive stocks. Okay, and then Nancy, I know for you, and you guys have been trimming cyber uh, stocks, Nancy, after cybersecurity names that have been outperforming, but you still like Square. You've got ServiceNow and Chipotle. I mean, they're not cheap either. 
No, they're not. But we're in the, we're um, focused on pricing power. So Chipotle has demonstrated they have tremendous pricing power. Um, they've made they pivoted very well during COVID. You, you know, it's up threefold from where we bought it. But we think you still want to own this stock in the coming years. But a name like Square, uh, with their recent partnership with TikTok, that that is a company that's disrupting at an accelerating pace. And so we like that name a lot. And we we would say to investors, be patient, don't chase it. You will get pulled and you will have an opportunity to get in there. But this is a stock you put away for the next 10 years, I, I think. And so we're barbelled between value, sort of some of the cyclical value names we added to materials and industrials and energy uh, during the summer when these things got hammered. And we had been at, uh, adding to um, technology in the spring when those stocks were being punished. So we have a barbell really with an overweight in technology and then those previous sectors that I mentioned. All right. So again, right. some sort of specific ways to maybe uh, look to navigate the next couple of months. Thank you both today, Nancy Tangler and Gina Sanchez. We appreciate it. Up next, venture capitalists are pouring billions into Latin American startups. We'll dig into what's got investors so enticed next when we come right back. Welcome back. Startups in Latin America are getting flooded with VC money from the likes of SoftBank and Sequoia. Kate Rooney is here with these eye-popping numbers. And what's driving it, Kate? Hey, Kelly. Venture capital investors see big opportunities in Latin America, especially in fintech and e-commerce. So far this year, the region has brought in just under $15 billion in VC funding. That's up threefold from a year ago, according to CB Insights. And fintech in particular is booming. In the third quarter alone, there were more than 50 Latin American fintech deals. In total, those topped $3 billion. That's according to PitchBook. Investors I've been talking to point to a young, mobile-first population with some of the highest internet penetration and engagement rates in the world. But e-commerce there has lagged historically. That is, until the pandemic forced a lot of the world to start using on-demand delivery and moving their financial lives online. VC investors point to that lack of uh, existing infrastructure as well and a pretty large unbanked and underbanked population there. makes it especially ripe for some of those digital challenger banks. There have been a couple new laws as well in Mexico and Brazil that make it a bit easier for these new challengers to come on the scene. And Argentina, Chile, and Peru are expected to follow. And take a look, Kelly. Brazilian fintech Nubank is now one of the most valuable private companies in the world at $30 billion. Berkshire Hathaway is now one of its big backers after the most recent funding round. Kelly. I wonder also about crypto, you know, obviously with what's going on in El Salvador, but we sometimes hear, you know, hints from uh, other countries in the Southern Hemisphere about that as well. And what are the, you know, has return on capital traditionally rewarded investors or do they do they think this time is different? Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned crypto. There are a few blockchain companies and the thesis for Bitcoin and the the idea of inflation is even bigger in a lot of um, South American Mm -hmm. uh, countries in particular. If you look at a place like Argentina, the use case for Bitcoin as a payment method seems to make a bit more sense in some of those countries. The big challenge that I'm hearing now is just competition. You have um, the likes of SoftBank moving in with a massive Latin American fund. Uh, There is just a lot of dollars chasing some of the same deals. So I think in terms of the uh, competition, it's definitely heated up and the return on capital might just be harder to find reasonable valuations. And one of the other things Sequoia in particular pointed out, they were saying that 
Ten years ago, they saw the same reasons to get into Latin America, but they didn't see sort of the founder ecosystem or the entrepreneurs. What they're seeing now is a lot of entrepreneurs leaving big tech companies to start their own. They're looking at the success of this ecosystem and saying, all right, instead of joining maybe a Google or a Silicon Valley tech company, I'm going to go back maybe to a place like Colombia. If you're from South America or Latin America, you're seeing more entrepreneurs go back, start their own companies and get VC funding. Very, very cool. Kate, it's a great story. Thanks for bringing it to us, our Kate Rooney. And with investors focusing on fintech in Latin America, let's check on how those names dubbed neobanks have done so far this year. A firm is the big winner, up 185% since its January debut and tripling off its recent lows. It's up 18% this week after Target said it's offering installment loans with a firm as well. Now, Square and PayPal are only up about 12%. They both recently acquired smaller buy now, pay later startups. Square buying Australia's Afterpay for $29 billion in an all-stock deal in August. PayPal last month bought Japan's Payday for just under $3 billion. Still ahead, Lowe's and Home Depot getting a reluctant downgrade today. We'll speak to the analyst behind the call about this move next. And our own Jim Cramer weighed in on that call in his CNBC Investing Club newsletter this morning, saying he was skeptical because he met with Lowe's CEO last week and business seems good. If you want more of Jim's takes, you can sign up for exclusive content at cnbc.com slash investing club or point your phone at that QR code on the screen. Use the camera feature. It'll take you to the sign up page. We're back in a moment. Loop Capital downgrading Home Depot and Lowe's from a buy to a hold, due in part to significant supply chain risks. They're also cutting Home Depot's price target from 370 to 325, which is $8 below where it's trading today. The stock is down 1%, so is Lowe's. But Loop Director of Research Laura Champagne says she was reluctant to do so. And she reluctantly joins me now. <laughs> Laura, it's great to see you. And uh, is this a valuation call, you know, or is this more about the business fundamentals? It's more about the business fundamentals and the business fundamentals looking forward. So we raised our rating on these stocks um, about 18 months ago. So they've essentially doubled since then. So I've got to think about from today what's likely to happen. And even though demand seems strong, we see real issues with in-stock positions in stores. And we're concerned that inflation, including on supply chain issues, may persist into next year and that then that may push the Fed's hand. I just don't want to be left holding the bag once this cycle turns down. So if you're concerned about the Fed's response, does that mean it's a macro slowdown that manifests at Home Depot and Lowe's? Or is it more that these particular companies are going to face a profit margin squeeze or the lack of inventory because of supply issues? They're both concerns. So the macro concerns are really about next year, because right now, with home prices just skyrocketing, demand seems very strong. But I am concerned about their ability to meet that demand. In our store checks for both chains earlier this week, we couldn't even get someone in to talk about inflation until a month out. Hmm. And we're seeing um, out of stocks in key categories like tools. Uh, there are lots of interesting things happening with seasonal I'm, I'm worried about their performance this quarter, the October quarter, and then the macro concerns really come into play next year, I think. So let's talk about this quarter for a moment and why you cut uh, your price target on Home Depot. This one, you're concerned that they are setting their stores for Christmas after Lowe's. Why does that jump out to you? Because I think that the supply chain issues have been widely reported and that people may be in the market for those seasonal goods sooner than they, mm-hmm. than they normally would. And once you buy that artificial tree, once you buy that yard art, you're done. So 
if if Lowe's is stocked now, then I think they might be able to recapture demand that never gets around to Home Depot. I did hear from some supply chain checks that perhaps Lowe's has set its entire holiday assortment already. If they can't continue to get product in, that creates problems. But right now, Lowe's stores look better than Home Depot's to us. And do you think that Home Depot is waiting for any deliberate reason or simply because maybe they don't have the supply yet? If there is a concern that you get your initial trucks and you can't send new trucks to stores every couple of weeks the way they normally do, maybe they're holding off for that reason. Home Depot usually does everything it does on purpose, not on accident, and and they're pretty in control of their own fate. But that may be different this year, given just, just issues at every stage of the supply chain, whether it's having enough containers or having enough trucks to drive from D.C. to D.C. It is fascinating. And now on my drive home today, I want to look and see, you know, check out what's going on there. Laura, thanks for joining us to explain this call. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Laura Champagne is with Loop Capital. Coming up with the weather cooling off and people heading indoors again, some experts are now warning about an impending twindemic. And it's not a pandemic of twins. Those details next. Masking and social distancing last winter didn't just help stop the spread of COVID. It also dramatically decreased cases of the flu. But things could be very different this year. Meg Terrell is here to explain why. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, we were warned last year about a potential twindemic, COVID and flu at the same time. And as you said, it did not materialize. But now we are meeting more in person. We are taking off our masks and schools are back in session. So health officials are warning it could be really different. But check out just how much COVID dwarfed the flu last year. The numbers of deaths that were being recorded each week just absolutely unlike anything we ever see from flu. And flu, which is the the white there, essentially disappeared last year, which in one sense is great news. But now experts are warning it could come back. Also, because we didn't have flu last year, our immunity isn't there. So experts are saying it could be worse this year. So they're really emphasizing now is the time for folks to get their flu shots. And the CDC estimates that manufacturers are shipping a record number to the U.S. this year, up to 200 million doses. About half of adults typically get vaccinated in about 60% of kids. They're hoping that goes up this year. Um, And in terms of the effectiveness of the flu vaccine, they acknowledge it's not as high as we've been spoiled with for the COVID vaccines, about 60% in the best seasons. But that's just against any flu. Against hospitalization and deaths, it provides a lot better protection. And so folks are saying, go out and get your flu shot before Halloween if you haven't already, Kelly. I'm going to try to go like maybe on my way home. Is there any talk about, you know, shortages of the vaccine, Meg? What would you say to people who have to figure out whether to get that before or after the booster, or can they even do it at the same time? I mean, no one wants kind of the side effects, uh, although I don't know if the flu shot typically has them. So what's the thinking on sort of the sequence of all of this? So experts say you can get them at the same time, and most likely you get one in one arm and one in the other. (laughs) And we have been hearing about folks who've been talking about the side effects they feel from a flu shot being stronger than usual. But what health experts are saying is that maybe they're just noticing it more because they're more attuned to that because of the side effects from the COVID vaccine, maybe a sore arm and and things like that. But you can get them at the same time. And in 20 seconds, Meg, are we going to have another spike in COVID once the Northeast goes back in for the winter again? I really hope not, Kelly. And folks like Scott Gottlieb have said, even if we do see a little spike right now, he thinks this is the last surge. But I asked Dr. Walensky, the CDC director, yesterday, and she said the future of this all depends on human behavior. We've got to get more protection.
All right, Meg, thank you very much. Our Meg Terrell with the latest. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.